0: Thank you, Harry. It is truly a privilege to be here with you this morning. I'm so grateful for all of you and uh, so eager to be here and open up the Word of God with you this morning. I know everyone at the seminary is so very grateful for our partnership with all of you here at the university. We, we truly do care about you and are eager to see what the Lord will do with each of you as you graduate from here and enter into a life of service to Him. And I know that many of you, for some of you at least, uh, many who are in the current Bible program, are going to end up at the seminary uh, eventually at some point down the road. And we're always very eager to see that transition happen. Students who come to TMS from TMU uh, are oftentimes the best of prepared seminary candidates. So we know what we're getting with all of you, and we're grateful for that. Uh, For those of you who are interested in that, Harry told me to do just a little bit of a commercial. Uh, We are rolling out right now a brand new scholarship that is going to reduce our tuition. Rate at the seminary down to $280 a unit, uh, which is going to be a really important part of making sure that uh, our education down there is kept at an affordable rate for men looking for ministry. And for those of you who are here as TMU students and are going to be transferring over to the seminary, there are other kind of automatic additional scholarships that are available to make sure that that is kept within the range of what you're able to afford. So feel free to talk to me or to our admissions department afterwards about that. We'd be happy to talk with you about that. Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Haggai. I did a brief survey of the website last night and found out that there's never been someone in the history of the Masters University who has said those words in a chapel service. But here we are, and I'm going to say them. Open your Bible to the book of Haggai. That's the text where we're going to spend our time together this morning. And much to my dismay, I woke up today and realized that I had left my preaching Bible in my office down at the seminary. And so I got here this morning, Bible-less, assuming that there would be a Bible somewhere on campus that I could, you know, steal and use today. And I happened to walk into our pastor and president's office, and there on his desk was a beautiful preaching Bible. So I did what any good preacher would do, and I swiped it. And I'm really going to try hard today not to teach it any kind of bad habits. So we'll see how this goes from the book of Haggai. You know, I remember very well the day that I was dropped off by my parents at university for my college education. That's one of those days, you know, there are certain moments in life where you're never going to forget those, those moments, those days, and, and that's one of those days. I remember, remember it very, very well. I, I was going to school, like many of you, 14, 15 hours away from where I lived, and my parents drove me down there all 900 miles of it, and they dropped me off, and the time came for them to leave, and there were many, many tears on their part, and there was great shall we call it exuberation on my part, and I, I thought, I'm free. I can do whatever I basically want to do. What am I going to do with my newfound freedom? And I remember that feeling of elation where I'm saying, for the first time in my life, I am now totally on my own and can do really much of anything. And so the very first thing that I did after they wept and drove away was to go inside and take a nap because I could do whatever I wanted to do I went to sleep and when I woke up my feeling of elation was gone and having replaced that feeling of elation was the feeling of the stomach flu and I was sick then for the next 48 hours and I remember thinking right as they left I can do whatever I want and I can do this I've got this I'm on my own and I can do it I can handle this and then within 24 hours I remember calling my mom and saying, Mom, I can't do this. She says, how was your first day, son? I said, I've been puking up my guts ever since you guys left. I am so sick right now, totally on my own, and I'll I'll never forget that, but I think that there's a a key question in that that all of us have to ask. When you get out on your own, and you're, you're just starting to figure out how to make your way in life, There's a lot of questions that are staring you down, right? There are small questions like what do I do next and how am I going to pay for it? Then there are the big questions like what am I going to do with my life and what does God want from me? I remember being in your shoes and thinking to myself, I'm not even sure about what my major is supposed to be, much less the meaning of my life. And oftentimes as we look at the future, we, we don't feel like we're up to the task. Many of us may look at the future and feel like we don't have the brain power. We don't have the money. We don't have the will or the talent or the smarts to to get up and be the very best in the field that God has called us to be. We say, "Well, I'm not like Steve Jobs. I'm not like Elon Musk. I'm not like in our case John MacArthur. So if I can't be the best, then what's the point in even trying?" Right? What what am I doing here? What am I supposed to do? What does God actually want from me? I've only got one life to live and I don't want to waste it, but I know that I don't have what it takes to be the best. The opposite perspective that many people in our secular world have is that they believe, well, I am the best. I can be the best. And they walk around quoting a man like Steve Jobs saying, well, I'm here to put a dent in the universe because why else would we be here? And oftentimes when we're young, it's tempting to think that way where we think I've got to make my life count. I've got to make something out of myself and pull myself up by my bootstraps and do something big with my life. Or we might dress it up in religious clothing and say, well, I'm going to do something great for God. Well, there's only one problem with that perspective. It's that it's not what God is looking for. You see, God is not looking for great. God is not looking for grand. He isn't, he isn't looking for someone who is worthy of his favor. He isn't looking for someone who is super talented. He's not looking for absolute genius. He's looking, and you all know this answer, for faithfulness. But the good news that the book of Haggai is going to communicate to us this morning is that he will give us what we need in order to be successful in our lives if we are faithful. 2 Peter 1.3 says it very clearly, and this is one of my favorite verses. It says, seeing that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us. You see, when you're faithful, God provides you what you need in order to accomplish the mission that He has outlined for you. And so today, our primary objective, our, our primary desire is to simply be faithful. And that really is the message of Haggai as we look into this passage together. Uh, go ahead and look at your Bibles there even in chapter 1, and you have Haggai walking onto the scene, and this is a prophet essentially to a people who did not feel up to their task, and for all of you who did not read the book of Haggai this morning in your morning devotions, let me do just a little bit of background for us to get us into the flow of what's going on here in this book together. You see, the temple had been destroyed, absolutely leveled by the Babylonians, and all the people had been carted off because of their disobedience to the foreign nation of Babylon. And after many, many decades, around 50,000 of those people were allowed to return back to their homeland in Jerusalem with very direct orders from God. His expectation of them was that they would go back and rebuild the temple. And they went back and started that work, and right away they, they, they laid the foundations for the temple, and that work is recorded for us in the book of Ezra. They immediately lay that foundation, but then something happens. The people stop the work they had been given to do because they ran out of money. They had trouble with drought in the land. The Samaritans were opposing them, and then they went and appealed to the Persians and got the Persians involved. And and the people are looking around saying, the job that God gave us to do isn't a possible task for us to get done. And so instead of doing the work that God had given them to do, they begin to rebuild their houses while the temple lays there empty, still in ruins. And eventually, 15 years go by, we're told, and by this point, the text talks about how that the people have even put wallpaper up in their own homes, but God's house isn't finished yet. And these are people who weren't trying to set out to do the wrong thing. They weren't trying to have the wrong priorities. They truly wanted to do what was right, but they couldn't. They were not up to the task that God had given them, and they knew it. They didn't have the resources, the strength, the defenses, or the manpower to get this job done, and they had some good excuses. You go to verse 6, and if I can paraphrase it, the prophet basically says, you're saying that you can't get this job done because you don't have enough food, you don't have enough drink, you don't have enough clothes, you don't, you don't have enough money to get the job done. And those are all seemingly very legitimate excuses, and it had led them in verse two, to draw the conclusion that, you know what, the time has not come for God's house to be restored. Because if the time had come, we would be able to do it. And since we're not able to do it, the time clearly hasn't come. And they have all these excuses that may even sound familiar to us. They say, well, the task that God has given me to do, it, it's just too hard. The task that God has given me to do, it, it's, it's too expensive. I'm, I'm too poor. It's, I, I don't, I'm not smart enough. I'm not skilled enough. I'm not experienced enough. All the standard excuses that people throw out at God for being the reasons why they can't do what he has called them to do. And they could have been saying to themselves, I mean, for real, God, how do you squeeze blood out of a turnip already? The time just hasn't come because this is not possible. But God was not having any of those excuses at all. As you look at chapter 1, one of the best verses in this whole book is in verse 7. God looks at all their excuses, the fact that they don't have food, clothes, warmth, money, and he says in verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Here's what I want you to do, and this is, this is awesome. He says, go up to the mountains, get wood, and do your job already. Right, he's, he's not having any of those excuses, God says, just go up to the mountains, chop down some trees, get some wood, and get to work. You can do that. Do your job. And so the message that Haggai brings to the people is a message of reassurance that God is with you. He is always your God, and because of that, He will backfill any weakness that you have that prevents you from accomplishing His will for your life. If those people were faithful, God would provide. If they did what He asked, He would make up for their weakness with His presence. You see, these people were so discouraged by how hard it was, and even after they got to work, they were discouraged by how shabby it looked. But Haggai's word of encouragement, it's very specific, the date in the text, is October 17, 520 B.C. Haggai comes to them in chapter 2, and he says, look, because God is with you, you can be faithful and that is Haggai's message to us even today because God is with you you must be faithful now we want to be careful in this text not to just take some promises that were given to these people and slap them onto our life Dr. Admiral Chow just wrote a book on hermeneutics and if he saw me doing that I would be in really deep trouble But we are going to look for some universal truths in this text about that principle of being faithful. You see, there are four ways in this text that the presence of God enables your faithfulness. And so this morning, if you're here and you're thinking, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life, and and I'm not sure what God expects out of me, just be faithful. And you say, well, how am I supposed to do that? This text answers that question. The first thing that we're told here is that God's presence brings strength. That's a universal principle that we can find in this text. It's found there in verse 4. Haggai says, But now take courage, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua son of Jehozadak the high priest. And all you peoples of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. Why? Because I am... I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And as for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst, so do not fear. You see, God was with these people, and the result was that his presence amongst them brought them strength to do what he had called them to do. And they were very discouraged because they were saying, essentially, there in verse 3 what we're doing seems like nothing in comparison to the temple that the Babylonians destroyed. But God comes to them in verse 4 and He says, I don't care about any of that. Take courage. Take courage. Take courage. Why? Because I'm here with you now. That's why they could take courage and find strength. God's presence brought to them strength. Psalm 27 says it this way, and it's all the encouragement that we need to understand that when God is with us, whom shall I fear? And God's message to these people was was very simple. He was saying, do your job. Because I'm still here with you. You know, it's really true that when the authority in our life is present, it gives us a certain sense of comfort and and strength to do what we needed to do. And this was really driven home for me just a couple of months ago when I had to drop off my five-year-old daughter to her very first day of kindergarten. Now, I thought that that was going to be a very traumatic day in her life. But in reality, it ended up being more of a traumatic day in my life, you see. I dropped her off, and and she was a little bit nervous, you know, and, and she got in line with the rest of the kids, and they walked into the classroom, and I was shocked because she never even once looked back. And I was thinking to myself, what was that? How could you not look back over your shoulder for me there? How could you have the bravery at five years old to just walk into that classroom by yourself without me by your side? And of course, my wife and I then proceeded to sob and walk out and leave our daughter behind. But the reality of it was that she felt the strength to do what she needed to do, which was to go and do her job, which was go to kindergarten that day, because she knew that mom and dad were there and would be there when she was done. Knowing that the authority is there behind you, it gives you the courage for what you need to do. And that's exactly what God says here in this this passage. His presence is linked to his promise. He says, don't you remember, don't you remember in verse 5, the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt to say that my spirit is abiding in your midst, so do not fear. God is saying, have you people already forgotten about my promises to be faithful to you? And he calls them really to look back at the past in order to find the strength that they needed for the present. He's saying, look at all the promises that I've been making to you and your forefathers for well over 1,000 years. And have I ever once let you down? The obvious answer is no. God had never once let these people down. In the face of their unfaithfulness, God had always been nothing but faithful back to them. And he says, "I, I have covenanted with you I have made promises to you. I have put my spirit in your midst. So don't be afraid. Go, he says, and do your work. Even though the temple was rubble and these people couldn't see God's presence, that did not mean that he wasn't there or that he had forgotten his promises to them or that his nature had somehow changed. You see, God was still the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God and he was their God and he loved them. And based upon all those promises He had made to them, they could take strength, have courage, get to work, and faithfully carry out His commands. He says, get to work, do your job. His presence brings strength to us. Romans 8.26 transfers the promise in this text and makes it a universal principle and applies it to our life. It says, you see, the Spirit is with you now, and He helps your weakness because you do not know how to pray as you should. And so He, the Holy Spirit of God, resident within you, intercedes for you with groanings that are too deep for words. You see, the Spirit of God is present in your life if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And if He is there in your life, the presence of God is to you exactly what it was to these people. It is an empowering agency that enables you to do that which God has called you to do. So you don't have to be worried about how am I going to be so great? How am I going to be so grand? How is my life going to have an impact? What you need to be worried about is how to be faithful today because God is going to empower you as you are faithful. You see, the very presence and power of God who delivered the people from Pharaoh was already present to make sure that these people could complete the task before them and the same thing is true for us. The God who defeated Pharaoh, the God who stopped the sun in its tracks, the God who, who brought the people back from Babylon and crushed death is here now ready to strengthen you for a life of faithfulness to Him. And we should take encouragement from that, just as God expected these people to take encouragement from that. You see, we aren't people who are great or grand or who have a lot to offer. We are people who are simply called to be faithful. We are people who are weak and the Holy Spirit of God pr- present within us has to help our weakness. But we're supposed to be weak, you see. The words of Jesus to the apostle Paul were very clear. He says, "My grace is sufficient for you and my power is perfected in what? Your weakness." We're meant to be weak. We're not meant to be great. God is meant to be great. We are meant to be faithful. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. He essentially says almost the same thing that is said here in this text. He says, go and do your job. Teach the people to observe all the commands that I have given you. What's he saying? He's saying, be faithful. Why and how? He finishes his statement by saying, because I am with you always see, it's the presence of God in your life that enables you to have the strength you need to do the job He has given you to do. Do your job. That's the application for us from this text. Don't be content to make excuses for why you cannot do what God has called you to do. Why? Because God is with you, He lives within you, and He will strengthen you. So if He has called you to the task, whatever that task may be, then He will provide the means that you need to do it. Your responsibility is to be faithful. And I don't know what kind of weakness is manifested in your life today or what you're facing, what trials, what tests, literally, you may be looking at here later on today. I don't know all of you and what's happening in your life, but I know that there is certainly weakness in all of you because I know that there is weakness in me. And that is exactly where God wants us to be so that he can prove himself great in the face of our weakness. And his message to us, even through Haggai, is simply say, do your work, for I am with you. See, God's presence, it empowers our faithfulness by bringing us strength. But Haggai goes on, and he gives us kind of a second aspect of the way that God's presence empowers our faithfulness. He says God doesn't just bring you strength, he also brings you hope as well. In verses 6 through 7, the text says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with my glory, says the Lord of hosts. Why does God kind of turn the tables and look down the corridor of time to the future? He does that in order to give these people hope. He says, because I'm with you, you can take hope in what is still going to happen out into the future. We have to go back to really interpret this text to the basic premise of what's happening here in these people's lives. You see, they were discouraged because their best effort looked so shabby. The truth of that is that your hope doesn't stem from the greatness of what you're able to accomplish. It flows from the way that God takes the work that you do and makes it meaningful and that's exactly what God is saying here he's saying the reason I want you to finish the temple shabby though it may look is so that I can come dwell in it and make it and make it into something great and grand he's not saying you can take hope because you're gonna build such a beautiful temple for my glory he's saying you can take hope because I'm gonna take the shabbiness of what you've produced and I'm gonna make it into something worthy of myself I will do that work and he skips to the end really to the end of time And he says once more, in a little while, this is talking about the end, I am going to come. And then in verse 7 he says, and I will fill this house, this puny little house that they were complaining about, with my glory. So here's what he says. He says, stop looking at what you can't do and start looking at what I am going to do. And the result for those people was an incredible sense of hope. Where God is saying, Don't look at your problems in the short term, look at the long term, and when you do, you'll find out that the best is still yet to come. Because God had made them all sorts of promises that hadn't yet been fulfilled, and He's essentially challenging them here in these verses to remember those. And He says, Don't forget that the day is still coming when I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I'm going to shake all the nations. And you can take hope in what I am going to do someday in the future. You see, God's presence doesn't just bring you strength to do your work today. God's presence also brings you hope in what He will do tomorrow. The verb that He uses there in the text, is a, the verb for shake, is the Hebrew word for ra'ash. It's a word that people who know literature say is poetic. right? I'm having trouble saying that because apparently I'm not a, liter- a literary guy. But It's a word that sounds like what it is, and it it denotes a quaking and a violent upheaval where God says, I am going to do something really big in the future. I am going to shake the entire earth. Now, many of you may not have been here before for an earthquake, right? I mean, some of you may have just moved to California not too recently. Maybe you're in your freshman year, and you haven't had the privilege and the pleasure of living through an earth-shaking kind of an experience. But I remember it was over, it was probably 11 years ago, I had first moved to California, And I remember my very first earthquake. I had been living in town for all of maybe two months, and my in-laws were there visiting with us, and it was late at night, maybe 11 o'clock at night. And the window to their bedroom where they were staying was open. And so my father-in-law got up out of bed to shut the window because it was getting kind of cold. It was, I think, in October or November. And right as he shut the window, I mean, to the split second, an earthquake happened. And my mother-in-law was so mad at him because the whole house shook when he shut the window. And she says, Mike, what is wrong with you? It's 11 o'clock at night. Can't you be quiet? And 10 seconds later, I walked in. I said, did you guys feel that? The whole house shook. And she says, yeah, your father-in-law. I said, no, that was an earthquake. But in Southern California, we know what it's like for the earth to shake a little bit, right? Right? That is not the kind of earthquake that is being referred to here in this text. It's not the kind of earthquake that happens when you shut the window and the whole house shakes. There actually was like a real earthquake. I'm not, I'm not making that up at, the, at that moment. But this earthquake here in this text is a real earthquake. It's powerful. It doesn't just shake SoCal. It shakes the whole world. It shakes the heavens. It shakes the seas. It shakes the sky. It shakes all the nations. This is incredibly powerful. Everything, the way it is, is dumped on its head and turned upside down. And God says, you need to look forward to the day when I do that, when I dump everything in this world on its head and turn it upside down because I am going to do something great when I come to be in your midst. You see, the problem for these people was that they had no hope because they were looking back and from what they could see, there wasn't any hope from their time in, in destruction in Babylon. They were a shattered people. They were broken. They were crushed. They were unable to get their job done. And in this case, God tells them that if they would just be faithful to do what he asked them to do, he would be faithful to intervene and make it spectacular. How would he do that? Well, he would do that by bringing his king into their midst. That's what's going on here. The way God shakes the heavens, shakes the earth, shakes the sea, shakes the dry land, shakes all the nations is found there in verse 7. There's a phrase that is often debated how it should be translated. It says they will come with all the wealth of the wealth of all nations. The best translation for that really is that they will come to the desire of all nations. What is the desire of all nations? It's the person of Jesus Christ. Right? When he comes, he, his coming will come into that temple and he will fill it with his glory. And that's happened to an extent. There are still aspects of that that will happen in the future, but you see, when God's king resides in that temple with his people forever as the desire of all nation, Jesus fulfills this prophecy because he will be there without sin, without failure. He will fill that temple up with his glory, and even Solomon's temple, the temple that they missed so deeply, didn't have that. You see, this temple would be better than Solomon's, It would be filled with the glory of God and the person of Christ, this one who was the glory of God made flesh, according to John 1. The one of whom John wrote, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus Christ and his fulfillment of all the promises to these people was a certain shaking And when you look at the way He came back to provide salvation for sinners, it's as though there's this freight train coming and the earth begins to shake underneath all those who are watching. And someday in the future when He comes into this temple and fills it up, He will make the efforts of these people that seem so puny, He will make them great and grand and glorious. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27, it interprets this verse for us. It actually says there in that passage, what does it mean, Hebrews says, what does it mean once more in a little while? And then the author of Hebrews goes on to talk about what that means. And he essentially says that the shaking when Christ comes back in his second coming to fill that temple with his glory the shaking is so great that everything not nailed down is going to fall away and leave those things that cannot be shaken. And then he goes on to say you you who believe in the person of Jesus Christ are those things that cannot be shaken. He says therefore Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. You see, we are the fulfillment of this prophecy. This was a prophecy that was meant to bring these people hope. It's meant to bring us hope. And when we find ourselves with difficulty in fulfilling our mission, it's important for us to remember, just as it was important for these people to remember, that there is hope. The presence of God brings you not just strength to do your job, but hope to encourage you as you do your job. The application of this text is not, if you're faithful, God will make your life spectacularly successful. The application of this text is that if you're faithful, God will make your life meaningful. And that should give you hope, just like it gave them hope. You see, we are those people who can never be shaken. We, just like the people building that temple, We have hope. No matter the difficulty, no matter the uncertainty, no matter our insignificance, our king is still yet coming in the future. And when he does, his glory will more than compensate for and make up for whatever it was that you were lacking as you sought to do your job. That's what he's saying here in this text. Just do the work and be dependent upon him. Don't be discouraged by your inability. Don't be discouraged by your weakness. Look to him, his glory, and the future he has planned, and take heart. Because he makes up for what you're lacking. That's what God is telling these people here, and it's what he tells us as well. Romans fifteen thirteen. Now may the God of what? Hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. When God is present in your life and you are walking in faithfulness to Him, He doesn't just bring you strength to do your work. He also brings you hope so that you can rejoice as you do it. Haggai goes on and he gives us a third aspect of how God's presence empowers us for faithfulness. And this is really an awesome verse. Verse 8. He says, God's presence brings you ownership. And that's the point of this verse. It says... God says to the people, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. I love this because the, the emphasis of what God is trying to tell the people here in the text, it's super blunt. He's saying, I don't need your money because it's all mine already. So don't worry about that, he says to these people. Don't worry about the fact that your temple has no gold or silver in it. Don't worry about that. I don't need your money. What I need is you. That's what I need. He's saying here in this verse, please stop with the excuses. Stop trying to tell me that you can't do your job and build the temple because you don't have the money you need to do it. I don't need your money. I need your hearts. He's saying here in this verse, That if he wanted to, he could create. One commentator says it this way: He could create whole galaxies of gold. He's not lacking in gold. What he's lacking in is the faithfulness of his people. See, the gold wasn't what made the temple glorious. It wasn't that he had banks bursting with gold and vaults with silver. That's not what God wanted in his temple. What God wanted in his temple was to be able to be present amongst his people. And so he's saying, "Get the job done and finish it. That, and then I will come and I will make it glorious." No silver or gold could ever compare to that because he already has it all. It's amazing. You know, you think about people who are billionaires, right? A billion is a big number, and sometimes we don't really understand how big of a number one billion actually is. But my daughter last night, as we were driving around town, was trying to convince me that she had learned in kindergarten how to count to one billion, Daddy, I can really do it. I can do it. I actually can. You want to see? And I said, No, not really. <laughs> I said, That's going to take you a really long time. And she says, No, it won't. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 20, 30, 40, 100, 200, 1,000. And she counted up to a billion. And I said, Well, that was pretty impressive. I said, But if you actually counted to a billion one number at a time, how long do you think it would take you? And she said, I have no idea. So I asked Siri. <laughs> I wanted to know. If you counted at a normal rate of speed, one number at a time, it would take you 31.7 years to count all the way to $1 That puts in perspective just a little bit. It didn't really help her because that's kind of woo beyond her, but it helped me. It puts it in perspective how much money $1 billion is. Imagine taking a multi-billionaire now and saying to him, here, let me buy your latte. I got five bucks in my pocket. Let me do you a favor and buy this for you. Five dollars. To him, that's less than nothing. And to God, the money that you have is really less than nothing. He's saying, I want you to be a faithful steward, but the reality of it is I don't need your money. What I need is your heart. And if you think that your money and your effort and your time and your talents are going to make you acceptable to him, if you think that that's going to make your life significant in his eyes, you have totally missed the point. God doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need what you're offering. He's not buying what you're selling. He owns all time. He grants all talents. He creates all genius. And he, I mean, for crying out loud, he created gold. I mean, he's got his own mint in his back pocket, so to speak. And we think that he needs our talents? We think that he needs our time and our money? What he wants is the only commodity that you have that is worth anything. What he wants is your eternal soul. He wants the hearts of his people. He wants to make his residence amongst them. And if his presence amongst us isn't proof of his love for us, I don't know what is. He is God. He is here. He owns us. Why? Here's the great reality of it. Not because he needs us, but because he wants us. Silver and gold mean nothing to him faithfulness from his people is what brings him glory and someday that glory will dwell in our midst it will fill this temple that looks so puny and it will fill the whole earth he said to his people in Isaiah 41 do not fear for I am with you this is a statement of ownership over them his presence brings ownership he says don't fear I'm with you don't anxiously look about you for I am your God I will strengthen you Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What he's saying there is that I want to be your God. I want you. I want a relationship with you so that I can strengthen you and bring you hope. There's a similar statement of ownership for us that's given in the New Testament, Ephesians 1.13, where we're told, having also now believed, you were sealed in God with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. God owns you, and if He owns you, what He's after is your heart. He wants you to be faithful. And so we go back to our original question. We ask ourselves, well, what am I supposed to bring God? What am I supposed to do with my life? How am I supposed to make it count? I have nothing. Well, if that's your perspective, you're missing the point. You see, God doesn't need your gold or your silver. He doesn't even need you What he wants is your heart, not because he needs your heart or because your heart has so much to offer him, but because he loves to love you. His presence amongst us, it brings ownership over us and that ownership enables us to be faithful, you see. His presence, it empowers a life of faithfulness by bringing us strength. It empowers us by bringing us ownership. It empowers us by bringing us all these different things. It it brings us hope that we can do the task that He has placed before us. But then He goes on in verse 9, and He says, here's what you all need to understand, speaking to the original audience. He says, the latter glory of this house, the glory that's coming when He fills it with His own presence, it's going to be greater than the former glory the temple that was destroyed that Solomon had built. He says, the temple when I'm in it is gonna be greater than the temple that you all are mourning the loss of because it's in this place, verse nine, that I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You see, when God is present, his presence brings us peace. It doesn't just bring us strength and hope and ownership it brings peace as well a peace that enables us to walk in a relationship to him a relationship where we are now able to be faithful because we are at peace with god the greatest blessing brought by god's presence it wasn't just the strength of the hope or the ownership it was the quiet peace that came when he was in their midst because Ever since the fall of man, God has been at war with sin and He has been judging His people and the nations for their iniquity. And here, when the end comes and He sits down in His temple, peace comes with Him and all is shockingly quiet. In that day, all the promises for restoration that He had made, all the reconciliation that He had promised, it would come to pass and it would come to pass in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a peace that's even beyond the peace that currently passes our understanding in Philippians. It is a peace that will be a perfect peace, a permanent peace, because when God is present, He is at peace with those who are in His midst. Revelation 21.3 talks about what that day is going to look like. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. That's exactly what this passage is prophesying. And he will dwell among them with his presence. And he shall, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And here's what he will do. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Because those things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne, filling it up with his glory, says, Behold, I am making all things new see God wanted the people in Haggai's day not to worry about their lack of wealth or their weakness he wanted them to be aware that he was with them and that he wanted a faithful relationship to them and if they would be faithful then the day would come when he would live with them and bring them peace and that day did come and we are the recipients of it John fourteen twenty seven. what did Jesus say? He said, I came to bring you peace. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He's already brought this to us. And by leaving us with the permanent and dwelling presence of God's Spirit, we now have access to this peace that Philippians tells us surpasses all of our ability to even comprehend. And the day will come when that peace will be made permanent, when he comes and indwells this temple and sits down on his throne, filling it with his glory, compensating for all of our inadequacy. See, the people in Haggai's day, they didn't think that they were strong enough. They did not think that they were good enough. And they did not think that they were capable of bringing God worthy offerings or building him a house that was worth the magnitude of who he was. And they were discouraged by it. They were saying, how are we supposed to make a difference? We don't have the ability to do what you've called us to do. And God says, that is exactly the point. I know, He says, that you're not good enough. I know that you're not strong enough. And that is why I'm here with you now. Because I am strong enough. I am good enough. And what you lack, I will provide you. If you're faithful, I will give you strength. I will give you hope, I will bring you ownership, and I will bring you peace. God's message to those people was, what more could you possibly need to live a life of faithfulness? Because that, in the end, is all that God expects. And so we come back to ourselves, we come up out of this text, and we begin to apply it to our own lives. And We say, well, what's the point of all that? Here's the point when you look at your life and you're trying to figure out what am I going to do with it and how am I going to make my mark and will my life make a dent in the universe remember that you are not great remember that you are not grand that you do not have anything to offer God that he already needs you may be saying to yourself this morning well I'm not like so-and-so and my life isn't as important as theirs so what is the point or you may be sitting here this morning looking at the trials in your life. It could be the sickness in your family. It could be a financial-ish situation that you're facing. It could be any number of obstacles in your life. And you're saying, those trials, those obstacles, they are standing directly in my way of doing what God has called me to do. And God's response to you is very clear. Do your job. Be faithful, because He is with you. And that is what He requires. He says, stop with the excuses and just live in a way that is faithful to me. That is what He requires. Do your job. Don't go searching after ambitious significance or grand accomplishment. But instead, live a life of obedience. And if you do that, His Spirit will bring you strength. It will bring you hope. It will bring you his ownership. It will bring you his peace. And what more could you possibly need than that in order to be faithful to him? Let's close in prayer this morning. Our Father, we do thank you for your word and its power in our lives. We see even in your messages, you explain the benefits of your presence to people 2,500 years ago the reality of what it is you do in our lives to allow us to be faithful to you. So may we live with full dependence upon you. May we walk in total faithfulness. May we live lives of obedience. In Jesus' name.